You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels. Twelve Lectures, translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 9. Given in Munich on the 4th of December, 1909. Entitled Group Souls and Individuality. Today we will concern ourselves with a general theme, namely one that asks the question, What is the meaning and task of anthroposophically oriented spiritual science in the present? On Tuesday we will tackle a more personalized theme concerning individual being and destiny. As we have often emphasized, anthroposophy has a specific task and significance for humanity at this particular time. Ultimately, every thinking person who engages with anthroposophy has to ask themselves, What exactly are the aims being pursued by this spiritual movement? How are these related to other challenges of our time? As we have often done, we can throw light on these tasks from a number of standpoints. Today we want to try to encapsulate our own times and look at those of the near future in the context of human evolution by asking ourselves, what is anthroposophy's mission in terms of human evolution and our present time. We know that ever since the great Atlantean cataclysm, when the orb of the earth, dwelling place of humanity, completely metamorphosed, five cultural epochs can be differentiated before present times. These cultural epochs have often been designated ancient Indian, ancient Persian, Egypto-Chaldean, Greek-Latin eras, and then the present age the fifth cultural epoch, in the middle of which we find ourselves, in preparation, let's say, since the 8th, ninth, and 10th centuries. We need to be clear that these time designations are not intended to imply abrupt endings and new beginnings between developmental ages, but rather that what was new was gradually prepared for before an age had really run its course. This we can say of our fifth post-Atlantean era, that it is already in meaningful preparation for what will be characteristic of the sixth cultural age. The humanity of today will basically, and in general, be divided into two, into those who cannot conceive of a sixth epoch being prepared, who, as it were, live blindly into each day and those who sense or imagine that a new age is in preparation, and who also realize that innovation will take place through and be prepared for by human beings. One can either imagine a future where things are done as usual, just as our forefathers and others have always done them, or one can be more aware by saying, if you wish to be a conscious member of humanity's continuity, You need to work either on yourself or on your environs so that you contribute to the coming sixth cultural epoch and realize how much 
depends upon you. We will only understand how to prepare for what is approaching by going into the character of our own times a little. This will offer us the best means of comparison. We know that the cultural epochs differ intrinsically from one another, and many examples have been brought over the years of our anthroposophical movement as to what those differences are. We referred to the ancient Indian culture and showed in which ways the constitution of human souls differed from later times, how they were highly gifted in clairvoyant consciousness, how evolution in the following epochs involved a gradual loss of clairvoyance, while an ability to perceive and to reason were increasingly restricted to their physical environment. We saw how the fourth cultural age slowly emerged, and how humanity stepped, as it were, right onto the physical plane, so that the being whom we call Christ Jesus could be embodied as a physical human being. We then saw how, in subsequent times, throughout certain streams, the following emerged. Human faculties all became more robust in physical terms, noted the materialistic cast of our time, and how all the pressure on human beings to validate what is present in the physical world is connected with a wider descent into the physical plane. But we will certainly not remain here, as far as evolution is concerned. Humanity must ascend once more into spiritual worlds, but must ascend together with all the achievements and fruits rested from physical existence. This is precisely where anthroposophy can offer the potential to re-ascend to spiritual realms. We can only say, just after the great Atlantean disaster there were numerous people who knew from their immediate ability to perceive that they were surrounded by a spiritual world and that they lived within it. Those who knew this became fewer and fewer as faculties became increasingly restricted to physical perception. Whilst on the one hand, supra-sensory knowledge of higher worlds is now at its lowest conceivable ebb. On the other hand, preparations are afoot for something so momentous that for a large number of people capabilities quite unlike those we have at present will exist in the Incarnation following their present one. Just as human faculties have metamorphosed throughout the five cultural epochs, so they will also evolve into the sixth epoch, and a large number of today's individuals will then, through the whole nature of their souls, clearly show that their capacities have changed. And this is where we would like to create some clarity today. Just how different the souls of tomorrow in a considerable portion of humanity will be by the time of their next or subsequent incarnation. We can also view human evolution over ages that have long flowed by in another way. We would then see how the farther back we go toward clairvoyance, the more did human souls resemble what we can call group souls. Whoever felt, consciously felt themselves to be part of the ancient Hebrew people would have said, and this is to be well noted, as an individual person, I am a fleeting transience, but within me lives a direct connection 
with all the soul essence that has slowed down to me since our progenitor, Abraham. This is what a member of the ancient Hebrew people would have felt. In esoteric terms, we can even call what the ancient Hebrews felt a spiritual manifestation. We will understand this better if we focus on the following. Take a Hebrew initiate. Though initiation was less widespread than among other peoples, we cannot characterize one such properly initiated person, not just one inducted into theories and laws, but one who could genuinely see into spiritual realms, without taking account of the singularity of their people. Modern science, cluelessly casting around for physical documentation, is in the habit of seeking to confirm everything in the Old Testament against physical records, which it can then not find. We will have occasion to point to the fact that the Old Testament is truer to the facts than recorded history can credit. Spiritual science shows that in the Hebrew peoples a blood relationship with Abraham, their ancestor, can be shown to exist, and that presumption of Abraham as progenitor is justifiable. This was something known primarily in ancient Hebrew mystery schools. An individuality, a soul being, such as Abraham, was not only incarnated as Abraham, but remains as an eternal spiritual being of enduring presence. And in truth he was a genuine initiate, inspired by the same spirit as inspired Abraham, and who adjured Abraham as his own, and who was pervaded by the same soulfulness as Abraham. Thus there was a real connection between every initiate and the original forebear, Abraham. We need to hold on to this because in it is expressed that feeling of belonging to the entire ancient Hebrew folk, which was a sense of belonging to a communal or group soul. What was expressed in Abraham was felt to be the group soul of the people. Group soul qualities were also felt in this way among wider humanity. Humanity as a whole can be traced back to soul groupings. The further back we go in human evolution, the less distinct does the individual become. Just as in the animal kingdom group souls still pertain, so the further we retrace our steps into the antiquity of human evolution, the more widely do we find human group souls. Groups of people belong together and any one group soul was far stronger than the individual souls existing singly within it. We can say that even now the tendency to group souls among humanity is by no means overcome, and whoever thinks this to be past is not focusing on certain more subtle phenomena in life. However, anyone bearing this in mind will soon see that in fact some people not only resemble each other in their physiognomy, but that soul qualities among groups of people show kinship, that they can, as it were, be classified into groups. Everyone nowadays still thinks themselves to be included in some category or other. As regards this or that characteristic, one might feel one belongs to several of these, but there still remains a certain group soul quality, not only through the fact that peoples still exist, but in other regards too. 
The boundaries drawn between nations are increasingly falling away, yet other groupings are still observable. Certain fundamental characteristics in individuals may form clusters and are visible to anyone who can see that the last remnants of a group soul quality still persist. We are living through times that are transitional to an exceptional degree. All group soul tendencies are gradually being sloughed off. Just as the gulf between nations disappears, the more individual nations learn to understand each other ever better, so will all other group soul characteristics vanish and the individual human being will increasingly come to the fore. In this way we have illustrated something quite fundamental in evolution. If we wish to approach this from another perspective, we can say that over the course of human evolution, the concept within which group soul qualities are most often expressed, the notion of race, loses its significance. If we look back beyond the great Atlantean catastrophe, we can trace how human races were being prepared. In ancient Atlantis, human beings were grouped much more on the basis of physically perceptible attributes and build than is now the case. What we today think of as race is merely a remnant of those substantial differences between people as they existed in ancient Atlantis. Concepts of race are only really applicable to ancient Atlantis. Here we are using a concept as regards genuine human evolution and post-Atlantean epochs, a notion of race that is in no way used in any flagrant sense. We do not speak of an Indian race, a Persian race, and so on, because that is no longer true. We speak of an Indian cultural epoch, an ancient Persian cultural era, and so on. It would be totally senseless were we to suggest that a sixth race were in preparation in our times. Even though remnants of ancient Atlantean differentiation and group soul qualities may still be discernible, to the extent that one can speak of division into races as a residual after-chime of Atlantis. But what is being prepared for in advance of the sixth epoch consists precisely in the fact that racial characteristics are to be stripped away. That is the whole point. And that is why the fundamental nature of a movement such as anthroposophy intended as it is to prepare for the Sixth Cultural Era, must exemplify the drive to be rid of all racial connotations by seeking to unite people of all nations, all races, by bridging all remaining differentiation, all gulfs, all distinctions between human beings and groupings. What once constituted an ethnic viewpoint retained a certain physicality, that will be transformed into a far more spiritual quality, which will find fulfillment in future. This is why it is so crucial that we understand our anthroposophical movement to be a spiritual movement that looks toward what is spiritual and overcomes with all possible vigor whatever stirs from physical differentiation. It is understandable that all movements have, as it were, their childhood illnesses, and that at the start of the theosophical movement the subject was presented as if earth evolution 
could simply be divided into seven time spans, termed primal or root races at the time, and each of these seven was further subdivided into seven subsidiary races. It was said that these are recapitulated such that one would always be speaking of seven races and seven subsidiary races. However, one has to go beyond childhood illnesses and be quite clear that the concept of race ceases to have any relevance precisely in our time. Something else is being prepared, something eminently connected with the individual, which has to do with the process of ever-increasing individualization among human beings. It is just a matter of each individual becoming more and more individual in the right sense. And anthroposophy should be aiding this process whereby individuals become more individual in an appropriate way. How can it do that? Here we need to look at the most prominent and recent soul faculty under development. The question is often asked, if reincarnation is a fact, why is it that people cannot remember their previous incarnations? I have often answered this question in following Maine. Readers aside, Maine is spelled M-I-E-N, end of readers aside. It is tantamount to saying to a four-year-old child on the basis that they can't do arithmetic, but they are nevertheless human, that human beings can't do arithmetic. Just leave it a few years until they are aged ten, and they will surely be able to do arithmetic. It is similar with human souls. If they cannot today remember, the time will come when they will be able to remember, a time when they will have the same faculties as an initiate of today. It is now that this transformation is taking place. There are numerous souls nowadays who are on the brink of recalling at least their last incarnation, if not those further in the past. Many people are as if at the very point when the portal opens onto memory that can fully encompass not only life between birth and death, but previous incarnations, or at least the most recent of those lives. And if after their present incarnation a number of people are reborn, they may indeed remember their present life. It is just a matter of how they remember it. To this end, anthroposophical development indicates the right direction and the positive means by which one will be enabled to remember. Characterizing the anthroposophical movement from this perspective one would have to say, Anthroposophy is disposed to help people to comprehend the human eye, capital, that inmost element of each person's being in its truest sense. I have often mentioned the fact that Fichte says, quite rightly, that most people would prefer to imagine themselves as a lump of moon lava than as an eye. If you think how many people nowadays even wonder what an eye is, in other words, who they actually are, you will come to a very sad conclusion. Whenever this question crops up, I have to recall a peer of over thirty years ago who was then a young chap, totally infected with a materialistic outlook. Today this outlook goes by the more modern name of monistic, 
Despite his young age, he was completely captivated by materialism. He would laugh whenever it was suggested that humans might have a spiritual component, something one could call a spiritual nature, because he was of the opinion that what is alive in us by way of thoughts are just a result of mechanical or chemical processes in the brain. I often said, Look, if you seriously believe this is the sum total of life, why do you carry on lying? He was indeed lying, because he never said, My brain feels, my brain thinks. Instead, he would say, I think, I feel, I know this or that. He was subscribing to a theory contradicted by his every word, and this is something everyone does because it is impossible to uphold an imagined materialistic theory. One cannot remain truthful if one thinks materialistically. In saying, my brain loves you, one should really not say you, but my brain loves your brain. People fail to make this consequence clear to themselves. This is not just funny, but it reveals what untruthfulness underlies our spiritual culture nowadays. Most people would really seem to prefer to self-identify as a piece of moon lava or some such amalgamation than what we call the I or ego. Least of all does one arrive at a conception of an I through the methods of external science, which are bound to materialistic thought forms. How is one to reach a concept of an I? How can we gradually form an idea, a conception, of what we instinctively feel when we say I think? Only and exclusively by means of what can be learned from anthroposophy as to how the human being is constituted of Saturnine physical body, sun-derived ether body, moon-natured astral body, and earth-related I. Once we focus on all these ideas gleaned from the entire cosmos, we will understand how the I works as the real foreman of all the other elements. Then we will gradually arrive at a concept of the entity for which we substitute the word I. We will be exerting ourselves in gradual pursuit of the highest possible understanding of this I if we learn to understand the word. Not only do we experience ourselves to be a spiritual being when we become aware within one such I, but we can also reflect in our individuality lives something that predates Abraham, that arch-ancestor. We need not only say to ourselves, I and Father Abraham are one, but rather I and Father Abraham are the spiritual element weaving throughout and enlivening the entire world. What inhabits the I is of the same spiritual substance as interweaves and vivifies the world, the cosmos, In this way we are gradually toiling toward an understanding of this I, this bearer of human individuality that persists and endures from incarnation to incarnation. In which manner do we grasp the I, conceive, in fact, of the world through an anthroposophical understanding? An anthroposophical world outlook takes shape through the most individual means possible, yet it is simultaneously the most non-individual and universal view that can be imagined.
it can only be arrived at by the most individual means, because the mysteries of the universe are revealed within a human soul, in that mighty beings of the cosmos stream into it. World content must be experienced in the most uniquely individual way, yet must simultaneously be experienced as possessing a character of complete non-personality. Whoever longs to experience the true nature of cosmic mysteries must fully inhabit a standpoint from which they can say, anyone who still heeds their own opinion can never attain to truth. This is what is peculiar to anthroposophical wisdom, that an observer cannot retain their own opinion or preference for this or that theory as a result of their own particular individual idiosyncrasy, but that they must show no preference for one or another viewpoint. As long as they take a partial stance, true world mysteries will be unable to reveal themselves. A person must acknowledge on an individual basis but their individuality needs to extend so widely that it retains no trace of anything personal, neither by way of sympathy nor antipathy. This needs to be taken seriously, wholeheartedly and stringently. Anyone maintaining partiality in relation to particular definitions, concepts or opinions, whether through their education, temperament or other leaning, one way or another, will never be in a position to recognize objective truth. This summer we tried to conceive of Eastern wisdom from a perspective of Western teaching. We tried to be equitable in relation to Oriental wisdom and presented it in a way that fully honored it. It must be strongly underlined that one cannot profess a preference for either an Eastern or a Western world outlook at a time such as ours when spiritual knowledge is to be sought independently. Whoever says, according to temperament, that they like the uniqueness or the lawfulness of the world as it is expressed in Oriental or Occidental form has not fully understood the nature of the issue. For example, one should not decide in favor of the greater significance of, say, Christ, as opposed to all that Eastern traditions offer on the basis of one's Western upbringing, or because one is temperamentally inclined toward Christ. One is only called upon to resolve the question, how does Christ compare with the East, when one is, from a personal point of view, equally disinterested as to whether Christ or Orient is the answer. As long as one has a preference for this or that, one is not called upon to make a decision. One only starts to become objective when one allows the facts to speak for themselves, when one pays no heed to any reasoning out of one's own opinion, but merely allows the facts to speak on the subject in hand. For just such reasons does what we encounter in anthroposophy, when perceived in its true form, approach us as if inwardly interwoven with human individuality, because it must issue from the power of the I, capital must spring forth from individuality, while, on the other hand, remaining independent, so that individuality returns again to a state of even-handed equilibrium. 
anyone in whom anthroposophical insight dawns has to be the most dispassionate of them all. Insight must not be dependent on anything. What it must rely on, though, is that the person imposes no personal coloring onto it. People will have to exercise their individuality because what is spiritual can emerge neither by starlight nor moonshine, but only in the human soul, within the individuality. This faculty will in turn have to have been developed to a sufficient level that it can switch itself off when facing the advent of such world wisdom. The same applies to anthroposophy and what it can offer humanity. On the one hand, it is something every person can access, regardless of their background in terms of nation, race, and so on, because it addresses only new humanity, the human being per se, not the abstraction called person, but each human being individually. This is what matters. Just as it issues from the very fount of human reality, it speaks to the deepest core of the human being itself. This is how anthroposophy seizes the very essence of human beings. In the way that we speak person to person, we are really only speaking surface to surface. Our inmost core is not bound to it. Understanding between human and human, complete understanding, is hardly possible today, except when what we generate issues from the center of our human being, and when, rightly received by the other person, it in turn speaks to their deepest core. This is why what anthroposophy transmits is in a certain sense a new language. Even though we are still obliged to communicate in diverse foreign languages, the substance of what is communicated is a new language that speaks of anthroposophy. The language spoken in the world at large is actually only valid for a very limited field. In antiquity, when humans still gazed into the spiritual with their archaic, nascent clairvoyance, words represented realities residing in the spiritual world. Even as late as Greek times, words retained a significance that differs from ours today. Plato's use of the word idea is different from the word idea as used by today's philosophers, who can no longer fathom Plato because they have no comparable outlook onto what he termed idea, and they therefore mistake it for an abstract concept. Plato still had the spiritual before him, albeit in somewhat distilled form. It was still, as it were, quote, somewhat completely real, close quote. Words still contained, if we may express it thus, the sap of spirituality. You can discern this in words. Anyone using the word wind or air today will have in mind something of an external physical nature. For example, if one said in ancient Hebrew the word for wind, ruach, one had in mind not something external or physical, but something spiritual that coursed through space. If someone breathes in, natural science today states simply that physical air is being inhaled. In antiquity, it was not thought that physical air was inhaled. It was quite clear that one was inhaling something spiritual, or at least something possessing soul qualities. Words, in their totality, represented spirit and soul. This has ceased, 
and today language is restricted to externalities. Even those wishing to keep up with the times, making an effort to see soul-spiritual derivation behind the palpable, only use words in a materialistic context. Physics speaks of force applied to bodies, forgetting that this derives from living forces, and that when two living beings come into contact, it is a result of animate beings causing this themselves. The original meaning of the simplest words is thus forgotten. Language has become capable only of expressing material effects, materiality, and this is especially pronounced in scientific language. What is contained in our souls while we are speaking is only comprehensible to those soul faculties that are bound to and use as their instrument our physical brains. As a consequence, our souls understand nothing of all that words signify once it is disembodied. Once our souls have gone through the portal of death, they make no further use of our brains, and all today's scientific disquisition becomes mere figment, unintelligible to the discarnate soul. It hears none of the talk, understands nothing expressed in the speech of our times. It can derive no sense from what only makes sense in physical life. It is even more important to be alert to material tendencies in what we can call our mode of imagining, our way of thinking. Here it is far more important to be really awake, not just theoretically, because it concerns life, not theory, that such traits can even be observed in theosophical circles. Materialism has been slinking in. Because it is in current vogue, this has insinuated itself widely into theosophical attitudes, so that even in theosophy itself, real materialism holds sway when, for instance, describing the ether or life body. Even though every effort must be made in striving for what is spiritual, this is generally couched in terms merely of a finer, more subtle materiality, including even such phenomena as the astral body. Usually taking the physical body as their starting point and proceeding to the ether or life body, they assert this ether body is based on the configuration of the physical body, but just more subtly so, and off it strides toward nirvana. Descriptive images can be found that originate from nothing more than physical phenomena. I have experienced how, when describing the good mood among those in a room, no simple phrase was used, but it was framed thus, There are some fine and rarefied vibrations in this room. What is spiritual in a mood is ignored and materialized by picturing a room as being filled with a fine pea-super fog through which vibrations are coursing. You see, this is what I wanted to illustrate, conceptually materialistic thought forms. Materialism even has those who wish to think spiritually by the collar. This is only by way of highlighting a contemporary tendency, but it is important that we are awake to it for precisely the reason just mentioned. Our language is still a sort of tyrant over human thinking, that our language brings a bias toward materialism into our thinking. 
Many who would very much like to be idealists today, seduced by the tyranny of language, express themselves in materialistic terms. This is a language no longer understood by a soul as soon as it is not bound to the human brain. There is something else, believe it or not. For anyone who knows genuine spiritual vision, real seership, today's prevalent manner of depiction and all theosophical scientific writings represent an actual pain because it seems to them nonsensical once they have started to think with their soul, now detached from its brain and fully alive in spiritual realms, rather than with their physical brain. As long as thinking is bound to the physical brain, the world will continue to be described in physical terms. But as soon as spiritual thinking is achieved, describing the world in these terms becomes meaningless. At that point it becomes truly painful to hear. There are good vibrations in this room instead of people here are in good spirits. This causes pain to someone able to see things clearly, spiritually, because thoughts are a reality. That room does in fact become a dark pea-super fog when filled with thoughts such as, quote, the room is full of good vibrations, close quote, instead of, quote, people are in good spirits, close quote. It is the task of spiritual scientific pictorial representation, more important than theorizing, that we learn to speak a language not only understood by human souls while embedded in a physical body, but also comprehensible when that soul is independent of its physical instrument, either in seership or when beyond the portal of death. That is the essential thing. When we set forth concepts explaining the world and the human being, our language must be capable of explaining this both to those present physically and to those living between death and a future birth. Yes, indeed, what is spoken upon our very ground of anthroposophy is heard and understood by the so-called dead. They stand upon the same ground where a common language is being spoken. We are then really speaking to all human beings. It is then to a certain extent of little consequence whether a person is physically incarnated or in another state between death and a new birth. In anthroposophy we learn a language capable of being understood by all humans regardless of whether in this or that state of being. Within the field of anthroposophy we speak a language aimed equally at the dead. In this we touch upon what might seem abstract, but which in anthroposophical iteration tends the inmost being of humanity. We penetrate into each soul itself. In this way we are freeing human beings from any group soul tendencies or qualities and each individual can become ever more empowered to take hold of their own unique I-ness. That is the peculiar thing, that those who find anthroposophy today, who take it up energetically, can be distinguished from those who remain distant from it, as if, through anthroposophical thoughts, their I were to crystallize as a spiritual entity and accompany the individual through the gates of death. In place of the I-being, that can remain intact, after life in a body, beyond the portal of death. In others, there remains a hollow space, an absence, 
Everything else in terms of concepts absorbable today will become increasingly superfluous and irrelevant to the actual core of the individual, to the essential kernel of their being. This central being of each person will be held, gripped by what it can apprehend of anthroposophical thinking. This in turn crystallizes a spiritual substance, which individuals can take with them, and through which they are able to perceive their spiritual surroundings, seeing and hearing in a world otherwise cloaked in darkness. This is how it comes about that when a person develops their eye within, through anthroposophical concepts and anthroposophical means of imagining, they now have a connection with all the wisdom of the world to be garnered, once this eye is developed, and which can be transferred into their ensuing incarnation. They will then be reborn with an evolved eye and will remember their previously evolved eye. That is the deeper task of the anthroposophical world movement, to send into their next incarnation a number of individuals possessing an eye which can remember its own individual self. These will be the people who will shape the seed-like beginnings of the next cultural epoch. Those human beings well prepared through the spiritual movement of anthroposophy to remember their individual I will be distributed throughout the world. The essential feature of the coming cultural period will be that such people will not be limited by geographical locality but will be scattered across the entire world. Thus, across earth existence will be dispersed the core of a future humanity, crucial to the creation of a sixth cultural epoch. Among these will be those who can remember and recognize the I toward whose advance they themselves strove in their last incarnation. This is the right soul cultivation of which we were speaking. Such soul faculties will not only be present in those individuals just described, but others will also be able to remember. More and more people will, despite not having developed their eye, be able to remember their previous life. They will, however, not remember a personal eye, so much as a group identity in which they have remained. There will thus be people who have ensured that they develop their individual eye and who remember that eye. They will remember their self as an independent entity, and will be able to look back and say, you were this or that person in those days. Those who have not advanced their I individuality will be unable to remember their present identity. Please do not believe that by attaining visionary clairvoyance alone, one will be able to recall one's previous I identity. Human beings were all once clairvoyant. Were this sufficient, everyone would be able to remember, as everyone was clairvoyant in the past. It is beside the point whether or not someone was clairvoyant, because we will all be clairvoyant in future. It is a question of whether one has tended one's eye individuality in this incarnation. Unattended, it is not present as an inward human entity. In looking back, it will be remembered as part of a group ego, as a member of a communal identity. Humans will say, yes, I was there, but I did not liberate myself. This will be experienced as a new feeling among humanity. 
that of having reverted back to a conscious blending with or subsuming into a group soul. This will be something terrible for the sixth cultural epoch. The inability to sense oneself as an individual in retrospect, but instead being stunted and confined within a group soul beyond whose bounds one is unable to escape. To express this crassly, one could say, those individuals who now tend their eye individuality will inherit the earth and all that it brings forth, speaking pictorially. And those who fail to penetrate and shape their individuality will be dependent on connecting themselves with a certain group by whom they will allow themselves to be instructed as to how they should think, feel, and act. This will be experienced as a descent, a deterioration, as a fall by a future humanity. We may regard all that constitutes the spiritual life of the anthroposophical movement not merely as theory, but as something given to us in the present, because it prepares in us qualities vital for the future of humanity. When we really take stock of where we have now arrived, by way of the past, and look into the future a little, we will have to say, now is the time when we start to nurture the faculty of recall. It is only a matter of doing so in the right way, and this depends on whether we have forged an individual eye for ourselves. We will only be able to recall what we have ourselves fashioned in our souls. Not having forged any such identity, All that will be left to us is a compulsive memory of group entity which will be experienced as a retrogressive fall into a group of higher animality. Though human group souls are more refined and elevated than those of animals, they are nevertheless group souls. The humanity of antiquity did not experience this as a fall because they were engaged in extricating themselves from everything resembling groupness and into individuality of soul. If souls are now arrested in their development, this will be consciously the case, and it will be the oppressive experience of those who, either now or in a future incarnation, fail to make the right connections that they experience a fall into a group soul existence. The real task of anthroposophy consists in providing these very connections and they must be grasped within the span of human life. If we focus on the fact that the sixth cultural era will represent the first, the total overcoming of all racial notions, we need to be clear that it it would be fantastical to imagine that races of the sixth epoch will issue from any one place and take shape in the manner of the ancient races. That is the nature of progress, that ever new forms of progression in life arise, that concepts, once valid, lose their relevance in later times. Otherwise, in failing to understand this, we will also have failed to grasp the very idea of what advance signifies. We will always revert to making the mistake of saying this or that number of rotations, so and so many races, circles, laps, Round and round it revolves, always the same. One cannot fathom why this wheel of revolutions, circles, globes, races would need to continue. So the word race 
is a designation only applicable to a particular time. Around the time of the Sixth Era, that term will have lost all but residual significance. Race will have retained only those elements applicable in ancient Atlantis. In the future, what speaks to the deepest levels of the human soul will increasingly be expressed in the external appearance of people. What each person has, on the one hand, conquered individually, or, on the other, experienced in a non-individual, universal way, will in future be etched into human countenances. Human individuality will be graven into faces, group soul features not. Humanity's manifold nature will be on display. Everything will be individually earned, yet won through conquest over individuality. We will not find those fired by their eye among groups, yet their individuality will be expressed in their appearance. This is what will cause differences between people. There will be those who have striven to gain their eye individuality. They will be dispersed across the earth and have the most varied features. But in this multifarious diversity, it will still be discernible, even down to their gestures, how each individual eye is manifest. Whereas in those who have not developed their individuality, the resulting group soul attributes will likewise be expressed. They will show group soul characteristics in their outer features. In other words, they will fall back into groupings bearing similarities. Such will be the external physiognomy of our earth, that the potential is in preparation for bearing one's eye individuality as an external emblem and also for bearing one's group soul nature as an external emblem. This is the purpose of earthly evolution, that human beings ever increasingly achieve the capacity to express externally what lives within. There is an ancient text in which the highest ideal for the development of the human eye, Christ Jesus, is characterized thus, when two are one, when outer reflects inner, human beings will have attained to Christ-likeness within themselves. That is the gist in part of the so-called Gospel of the Egyptians. Passages such as this can be understood in light of anthroposophical insight. Having tried to gain an understanding of anthroposophy's task on the basis of our deepest knowledge, on Tuesday we will tackle a spiritual conundrum that will lead us to a particular issue of humanity relating to its destiny and to its very being. The end of Lecture 9